This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. It's your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with Lillian Federico, a research director within our Commodity Insights division focused on North America power markets and regulatory and, and, and all that goes with that. Lillian, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me today. Yeah, gladly. I, I'm excited for the conversation, and and we're going to talk today about something that's kind of we, we we've touched on the edges on this podcast before, but but about the idea of distributed generation and, and more and more work at the state and, and sometimes local level to discourage to discourage tie-ins to gas grid or, or and or encourage residential solar or batteries that that remove people's reliance on the power grid. And one of the, the big questions I have around that and curiosities I have around that is what happens to a grid that is in need of investment when the largest rate payers back out? That largest rate payers being the idea that if I'm tax incentivized to add solar or batteries to my home, I have a home to add it to. Uh, right. And so it's going to, um, that policy will favor asset owners more so than non-asset owners. And, and so it, you know, we're seeing all the headlines about how the grid is in need of investment. I'm talking to you in Texas today. I think it's like the 14th or 15th day of the month above 100 degrees. So it's kind of crazy. So all, all of that kind of kind of frame here, but, but you and I spoke, I guess, last week or the week before, and, and you mentioned that I'm not the only one thinking this, which right. uh, I suppose was obvious, but it's that, that there's some, some some historical learnings from deregulation and, and other things um, that, that can be applied here. So, so maybe just help frame kind of what we're looking at, you know, in, in a broad perspective with this encouragement to rely less on the grid and, and then we get into some of the analogs and learnings as we move forward. So you've hit on one of the key concerns for policymakers associated with the energy transition, particularly mm-hmm. with the concept of decentralizing ownerships, ownership of key assets to the grid. Okay. okay. So yes, we have a grid that we need, that it's generally agreed, um, we need to invest in, in, in order to ensure uh, universal service, uh, reliability, uh, resiliency, in the face of more and more um, disruptions due to weather. Now, how do you do that if if you're taking ratepayers off of the grid? Well, one of the key questions that underlies this whole discussion is, is distributed generation really off the grid? You know, uh, battery storage has come a long way, but I think it's it's um, not at the point yet where it can uh, necessarily completely offset the intermittency of some of these of the of the targeted resources like like solar and wind. And so, you know, most owners of those kind of resources or folks that rely on those kind of resources need some kind of backup power. 
Mm-hmm. So you need to consider, you know, where's that backup power coming from? If it's coming from the utility or or that customer wants to be able to connect to the utility grid when their solar or wind is not is not available for whatever reason, you know, then then you know there's a cost associated with that, and they need to sh- you know pay a proportional uh, you know share of their cost for the grid. Now whether that's the same you know delivery piece that your vertically integrated customer pays or or whether it's some different amount or if it's some fixed monthly charge that's kind of like an insurance policy you know um you know th- there's a lot of discussion around that the other aspect of it is you know a lot of there will be times uh, and a lot of um these particularly solar projects are pitched to homeowners or real estate owners mm-hmm. um on the basis that, well, you know, you can totally offset or eliminate your bill, or you can maybe even, you know, depending on how much overcapacity you have at the right time, you know, maybe even make money on on this venture. Well, in order for that to be a viable alternative, you know, people have to be able to sell the power that they're not using into the grid so that it can be then, you know, delivered to other customers. So, So they are, they are, they are placing a a uh, a cost on the grid. They do have a need for the grid. So you know, I, I think it's pretty much agreed that off grid isn't really off grid. Um, it's just a matter of how do you uh, you know what kind of price do those distributed resource customers pay? You know, you also brought up you know another key issue um, you know that I've seen from my years of, of following the industry, and that you know the concept of fairness, equality. More recently, you know the the, the term social justice um, has has come into parlance. But you know these these are considerations uh, that utility policy utilities and policymakers have been aware of through the course of the history of of this particular business because of the role that it plays in people's lives, okay? So, you know, how do you ensure that less economically advantaged customers have access to the benefits, uh, the environmental benefit of solar and and, um, wind and, and other environmentally friendly resources, you know, and you see commissions developing programs for community solar or programs designed to have solar and and wind or other uh, energy resources on multiple dwelling units, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of rate design work that has to be done before that's going to run smoothly. So I, I guess, First, before, and, and I want to get into the rate design question, but the, the the point you made at the beginning about getting off the grid, that, that some of that is overselling things. And, and I have a friend in solar, and he's the way he's explained it to me is, you know, I can get a lot of the stuff that, that I use for my home, quote unquote, off the grid. But a, a lot of the things like air conditioning and, and some of the higher uh, electricity, higher higher requirement stuff I have in my house is still going to be fully grid reliant. And, and so mm-hmm. if, if I should lose power, as, as has happened, you know, through weather related reasons and others, mm-hmm. you know, my, my fridge will be fine. My lights will be fine. I can charge my phone, those types of things, but I can't run the air conditioner and some of the other things. Mm-hmm. Is that the, the way to think about it? Well, you know, it, it, 
again, it it depends on on what kind of backup resource you have. I mean, okay. when, when we were when we were doing the prep for this, we we talked about this. You know, uh, you have customers out there that they I, I'm not sure what he's using as his backup resource is it is it battery storage which would be environmentally no impact or is is he using a a natural gas or a propane or or even god forbid a, a diesel generator uh, as that backup and so then at the end of the day you know it's having rather than you know him being able to just switch over to you know utility service when, when the need might arise you're using some you know less environmentally friendly or uh, resource that that's going to actually work against the policy that that we're, we're trying to you know implement you know across the nation to to reduce carbon emissions mm-hmm. you know that, that that that's another consideration okay well this is, so then you know coming back to the rate design I mean th- this stuff is happening and I would assume it's happening slow enough but but perhaps in big enough chunks for people utilities rate designers to to take notice <laughs> how, how is the current system you know let's talk about it before the distributed generation mm-hmm. where where were the negatives from the business design today that that people really focused on that, that need to be addressed with a, a future rate design well, I think I think you know one of the bigger issues, and and this comes into play not just for distributed generation, but e- even for say de- you know demand side management and energy efficiency, mm-hmm. is there are fixed costs associated with providing utility service, and there are are variable costs that are associated uh, with providing utility service. Um, as it turns out, you know this is a very capital intensive industry, so so a you know a, a large portion of you know the, the cost to serve a customer and any given month is, you know, the fixed cost of the system. But unfortunately, the way rates are structured, that fixed monthly customer charge that that we all pay doesn't reflect that fixed cost. So the way the rates are structured is, and it varies, the, the percentages vary widely, you know, across the country. So I wouldn't want to quote them, but okay. but you have, um, you know, you know, you're recovering a portion of your fixed cost through that fixed monthly charge. And then, you know, regulators are kind of making assumptions that an individual customer will use some minimum amount of supply each month. And a part of the fixed cost of serving is built into that volumetric charge that you pay, you know, per unit of usage. So when you have something like, uh, you know, big fluctuations in weather one way or the other, you know, if you have like a very hot summer, the utility is uh, advantaged because they're probably selling quite a bit more units of right. supply than than they would be uh, in normal conditions. But by the same token, if you know that supply falls off below normal, then you know the utility is not recovering all of its fixed costs. So if you have customers leaving the system, by definition, you're going to have you know lower kilowatt hours sold, mm-hmm. and so you know the the utility needs to be able to recoup those fixed costs that it's not recouping from the customers that have left the system. And so that leaves you, that, you know, requires those costs to somehow, whether they get put through the fixed cost or, or the volumetric charge to be, to be put on the customers that are left behind. 
So that's right. one aspect of the rate design. The other aspect of the rate design that has always made things problematic and politically it's very difficult to change is the fact that generally speaking, your large commercial and industrial customers are subsidizing uh, your residential customers. Um, you know, large commercial and industrial customers, uh, you know, the large commercial one, uh, industrial ones, especially, you know, they may be running, you know, 24 uh, seven. Mm -hmm. So they have very attractive load characteristics and their demand is a little bit uh, more predictable. And, uh, you know, you can use a base load facility to, to serve them. Whereas uh, customers with more intermittent demand and, and smaller amounts of demand, like residential customers, uh, you have big spikes and that's right. when it becomes expensive to, to serve those customers. So now you're pulling the customers with the attractive load characteristics off of the system as well, if they're the ones that are, you know, installing these, these, you know, taking advantage of uh, these larger distributed generation projects, but are, and are now no longer contributing to, to the grid. And so have those, we seen in, in any states or any NERC regions, have we seen volumes decrease um, as a result of this distributed generation or is this, you know, how's this playing out in real time? Really, something we've we've looked at mm -hmm. um, at at this point. It's kind of it's a little bit difficult to tell. Um, you know, for a long time um, there hasn't been a lot of a lot of growth in the energy in energy usage nationwide. So it's hard to tell. You know, what's coming from distributed generation? What's coming from uh, you know uh, demand side management? Uh, okay. Which which applies, you know, across more customer classes. So so at this point, I'm really not in a position to to speak knowledgeably on, you know, what the actual uh, impacts have been so far. Okay. Well, so so then as as we're thinking about the the the, the rate de design, if if people are preparing for perhaps a decline in volumes longer term, what 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 are some of the ideas being discussed? To, to adjust um, the, the model going forward? And is anything, you know, being tested in, in, in any regions? Well, I mean, there is a concept called, a, you know, a straight fixed variable rate design. Mm -hmm. uh, Ohio put that in place for the gas utilities. They're the only one that I'm aware of that has it. Um, and that does exactly, you know, what I was talking about, which allows uh, the company to recover 100% of its fixed costs uh, through the, the fixed monthly customer charge. And so then the only thing going through the volumetric cost is, you know, the marginal cost of, of, of each unit of gas sold. But uh, so it's, it, you're really kind of splitting up the delivery and the, and the supply. Uh, you're sort of uh, almost un unbundling them. You know, a decoupling, a revenue decoupling mechanism is another way to go. And, uh, you know, uh, stated simply, uh, what that does is it allows the company to track differences between revenue they would collect under normal weather conditions, uh, customers were not using demand side management, um, and then allows them to, you know, sort of make that up on, on the back end. But, and there are, you know, a fair number of states that have, have implemented either just, you know, um, lost revenue from demand side management or weather or holistic decoupling mechanisms. But, you know, they, they, they have their pitfalls and their, you know, they're, they're difficult to administer. There's, there are mm -hmm. a lot of administrative costs associated with, you know, calculating what the difference is. It, is. it causes changes uh, depending on how frequently the adjustments are made. They cause, um, you know, frequent changes in bills and, and, and things that are otherwise generally not attractive to customers. 
So, um, you know, I think at this point, there's we're still at a stage where there there's more questions than concrete answers. And was there any impact before we got into distributed generation, um, you know, kind of technology induced uh, demand reduction, you know, efficiency has been talked about forever. Mm -hmm. um, so so are, are there learnings from um, efficiency, um, homeowner efficiency or even commercial industrial efficiency that would have had a, a similar perhaps impact on demand? Well, I, I think those policies, you know, I mean, I'm sure everybody's heard of, you know, um, the utility paying you money or giving you a mm -hmm. credit or getting a tax rebate for, uh, you know, swapping out from a, an older, less efficient appliance to a new appliance. And I, I think what, you know, what those things accomplished was maybe more of a a peak shaving kind of a function than, than a real, you know, uh, reduction in, in usage um, overall, uh, you know, may have, have contributed to sort of that slowdown in growth we saw in, in most, you know, parts of the country. I mean, I mean, it's probably been more than a decade since I've seen a utility other than, say, in Texas or Nevada or you know, maybe Arizona, you know, expecting, you know, sales growth of more than say, you know, one or 2%. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that the management, the man side management played a role in that. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, to, to, to clearly identify, you know, this is demand side management and, and, and this is, you know, you know, to, to, to clearly identify whether this is a specific demand side management program implemented by a specific utility and whether it's because of customer awareness and just, you know, using less, mm -hmm. you know, making, making a concerted effort to use less and, and lower their bills independently without there being a program um, or whether it's just, you know, from the economy uh, growing at a different pace or, right. or in a different direction um, than, you know, previously. So I think we've seen, I, I think there've been a lot of test cases. I don't think there have necessarily been any aha moments on, aha, okay. here's, here's how we do it best. Here's how we do it. Um, I think we, it's been, you know, we've been tinkering with the programs and tinkering with the programs, but I don't think there's really been any aha moments uh, like that. Um, I do know in some of the states where, you know, previously there were very, for lack of a better word, gung-ho incentives for things like demand-side management, you know, some cases where a utility could earn 25 or 50 basis points on its its entire rate base for implementing programs. Mm -hmm. I think um, some of that has been refined Okay. and um, has, you know, and and the focus has been more in recent years on one um, removing the disincentives rather than trying to put an affirmative incentive. And if there were going to be affirmative incentives, making sure that you were incenting the end result rather than just the program for the program's sake. So you okay. not not you know not incenting the utility because they put the program in place, but incent the utility because the utility put the program in place and it had a, had the desired effect. So more of a of a goal oriented rather than a a process oriented approach, if you will. Gotcha. 
But it's, so if we're thinking historically and looking at other you know periods of transition w w mm -hmm. within the, the the U.S. electricity sector, are there any other analogs or activities or, or learnings that that people are watching today as uh, utilities and the, the rate setters have evolved in, mm -hmm. in the past? Well. You know, as I kind of alluded to earlier, a lot of the issues that we're facing with this current energy transition are similar to issues that, you know, we dealt with in the late 1990s and early 2000s when, you know, a handful of states, I think at the end of the day, it was uh, 13, decided to uh, transition to retail competition for electric generation. We had some of the same challenges and same issues. We had, you know, how do you maintain un universal service and reliability when it's no longer longer the utility that's generating the power, I think to a large extent, that was remedied by uh, making the utility the default service provider or provider of last resort. When you're talking about taking utilities, uh, when you're talking about taking customers completely off grid, mm -hmm. I don't know how, you know, I'm having a hard time conceptualizing how you create that kind of a backstop relationship because, um, you know, with, with electric industry restructuring or retail competition for generation, you know, the customer was still purchasing that delivery function. The utility was still delivering the power. Right. So you still had that connection between the utility and the customer. Now, if you do go, uh, if it's defined as completely off grid, um, how do you then reestablish that connection? You know, that becomes tricky. And I think we alluded to that a little bit in the in our earlier conversation, you know, but the other issue that arose uh, that we really haven't talked about so far, um, that is a concern in this environment as well, is, you know, is the issue of stranded costs. Mm -hmm. You know, at that time, the concern was, uh, the thought was, whether it turned out to be true or not, was that by making electric markets competitive, uh, the price of power would, would drop uh, precipitously for all customers. Um, thus, essentially, um, if you would, almost devaluing generation assets. Right. You know, so if you looked at uh, what the book value was versus what the anticipated market value was, you know, you, you had a difference there. The utilities weren't allowed to retain those assets. They had to divest them either to uh, a completely unrelated entity or an, an affiliated um, competitive generation supplier. And you need to determine what value, you know, those assets were were being transferred to the new owner at, and what did you do with the difference? And so, you know, this is what we refer to as expanded costs. Mm -hmm. And by and large, you know, there was an agreement that those costs should be recoverable from existing ratepayers, and so uh, most commissions approved recovery through some kind of a, a competition transition charge that applied to all customers, those customers that left the system as well as those customers that remained on the system. And, you know, they were recovered over time to, uh, you know, reduce, you know, the burden that they represented. In some cases, they were uh, securitized to further reduce that burden, but it prevented all of that stranded asset from being mm -hmm. uh, dumped on the remaining customers. Now, again, how do you get around that in this construct? Certainly where you have generation that is becoming, shall we say, environmentally unattractive, um, and you maybe want to, uh, you know, accelerate the shutdown of, say, a coal plant or, mm -hmm. or even more recently gas plants. Um, you know, you can you can sort of do that same kind of treatment. You know, um, I guess we have a little bit more of a ramp up time with this, so you know, commissions are able to 
you know, accelerate uh, depreciation in order to, um, you know, time a full recovery of the asset with, the, with you know, a new plan shutdown date. They have a little bit more of an ability to do that than they did with in, in the previous environment. And, and we're seeing a lot of that, you know, happening. Uh, several states, uh, Texas among them, uh, Montana, um, you know, other states are letting the utilities, you know, use the same depreciation schedule. Then at the time that the plant is shut down, they create a regulatory asset that they then, you know, allow the customer to recover over uh, the company to recover, sorry, over a period of, of time. And, you know, they can also use creative financing like securitization for that. But again, you know, that's that's swapping out one type of generation asset for, for another. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about, you know, taking customers off the grid, that, a that's a little, game. that's a different ballgame. It's a little hard. How do you, how do you do that? And unless, um, I mean, if, thinking out loud, but but unless you remove yourself in, entirely, there, there there would have to be some sort of setup where the the the, the utility the grid can continue to be funded, and, and if you use or if I use less electricity, I, I I may still be paying within a rounding error of what I was paying previously because of some sort of rate paying construct right. that forces me to pay into the system. Until and, and that so asset really, is recovered. I mean, right. the thing about it is, you know, sooner or later those assets are recovered. It's not in, you know, because the the, you know, because the company is not that, or at least when we're talking about generation, is not then building generation to serve you who has left the system. So but it's much for, more longer for, term. Right, uh, right, right. And you know, and you know, and, and just to play devil's advocate on that, because usually I take, you know, it sort of seems like I take the utility side because I look at it from an investor standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um in the short run, you know, it may dull the edge of, uh, you know, some of the customer enthusiasm for some of these kind of, of, of transitions because, you know, you, you it reduces the amount of uh, bill benefit they can, they can right. see they can see from it. You know, it's one of the arguments that opponents of changing to something like a straight fixed variable rate design. You know, that's one of the things that they bring up is that, you know, oh well, if we raise the fixed part of the customer's bill then you know for every uh, kilowatt hour or or BTU that they're saving they're getting less bang for their buck on that they're getting less savings for um you know that reduction in in usage well people aren't you know people are going to be dis- you know the incentive isn't going to be great enough for them to exert themselves to to reduce their usage um on a you know, so basis, it's right yeah the, the, right the resilience incentive which seems to be an increasing incentive that the the, mm-hmm. the ability to have power when the grid goes down which right. is you know i don't remember it happening a lot as a kid but but mm-hmm. it happens often enough now that it's right. it's no longer quite the surprise that it was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so that being a main motivator from a resident Mm-hmm. is going to be kind of indifferent, to, to, but it, it does challenge the cost perspective of it. Yeah, and, you know, and, and it's about messaging, you know, right. it's about, it, it's about messaging. You know, I've been at conferences with, with folks from, you know, other speakers from states that are, you know, very uh, aggressive in, in moving toward the energy tra- transition. And when, you know, we've, you know, when the, the topic of these, cost <laughs> these cost disruptions or or mm-hmm. the the excess costs even if they are for a short period of time um 
in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, how they, you know, might serve as a disincentive or that, you know, they, you know, I've been told that, uh, well, you know, customers in our state, they understand that and they don't care. They want to, they want to move to this end result at any cost. Right. Um, they, you know, in other words, flipply, they don't care what it costs. So I, I guess to, to wrap up, what are things that we should be paying attention to? And what are things that we should be looking at over the next six, 12 months um, in terms of these um, the distributed generation rate design, uh, I guess, conundrums that, that some of these utility commissions or utilities themselves are getting into? Are there any states or you know overall trends that, that we should be paying attention to? Well, I, I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna go for for part B of that, okay. and and talk about over you know other overall trends. Um, you know, all of these goals and and these issues were were challenging enough when we were in a low interest rate, low inflation mm-hmm. environment. Now, you know, we're in a um, we're in the exact opposite. You know, uh, we have. Uh, you know, almost not quite double-digit inflation. Uh, the Fed is seeking to combat that by raising interest rates, and I'm not second-guessing that choice. <laughs> but you look at that at a, a point in time when utilities have, you know, very robust capital spending plans. Uh, a lot of it driven by, uh, you know, commission directives to improve resiliency, uh, to build new delivery. Uh, capacity to accommodate generation sources that may be may be in different locations than mm-hmm. traditional uh, to swap out traditional meters with uh, you know advanced meters, right? And and then on top of that, you have the prospects of at least for some period of time um, having to uh, allow utilities to recover. Uh, stranded costs that may arise from shifting from, you know, one pool of assets to another pool of assets on, you know, both the delivery and the generation front. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now you add that to, you know, r- rising interest rates and rising inflation. And that's going to squeeze, basically sque- squeeze authorized ROEs, which are are generally of top line importance to uh, investors looking at the utility sector. Uh, you know, you know, rate case is all about um, it's all about math. How how do the numbers add up? You know, you you move one cost up and that leaves you uh, less room to recover other costs because right. you know customers only have so much tolerance for rate increases. You know, we refer to it as headroom. And you know, regardless of the very seemingly strict formulas you have for calculating you know rate of return you know such as the discounted cash flow or the capital asset pricing model or risk premium you know the fact of the matter is that um, state statutes leave an awful lot up to utility utility commissioners discretion when it comes to ROE you know there are very specific regulations about if this asset meets this criteria you can include it in rate base and you can let utilities earn a return on it mm-hmm. you know if if this expense meets this criteria you have to let the utilities recover it but ROE is kind of, um, you know, it's left to the commission's discretion to kind of decide what authorized return is sufficient to attract capital um, okay. to, to finance all of these things. And, you know, when push comes to shove, when you have this pool of expenses that almost must be recovered, this pool of costs that almost must be recovered, and then you're looking at, you know, raising rates at a time when 
customers are being also being challenged by you know economic mm-hmm. realities it, you know it make it makes it difficult uh to authorize what investors might consider a fair or an attractive ROE you know uh, you have uh, and also on the investor side of the fence you have investors arguing that because of all of these changes and all of these situations you know utilities are riskier so that would justify uh, an increase in the authorized ROE sure. On the consumer advocate and uh, even, you know, some commissions to staff, depending on the role they play, um, you know, their their side of the coin, um, you know, they say, well, but you have all of these adjustment clauses and you still have a guaranteed customer base and, mm-hmm. and, and other guarantees that make you low risk relative to, you know, other other industries. You know, the other thing they look at is, you know, if you go back um, historically um, and you're looking at sort of from a risk premium perspective, the spread between uh, treasury yields and, and uh, authorized ROEs has expanded mm-hmm. um, over the last almost four decades I've been doing this. Um, you know, uh, the last time I looked at it uh, last quarter, you know, we were looking at somewhere around a 750 basis point spread okay. um, between uh, prevailing treasuries and, and the average authorized ROEs as we calculate them in, in, in uh, commodity insights. If you go back and look to the last time we had high inflation, high interest rates, and uh, robust capital expenditure plans for utilities, the average spread was probably somewhere more in the four to 450 basis wow. points range. So, you know, I'm not predicting that that's, I wouldn't want to predict that that's what's going <laughs> to happen, but you can see how uh, commissions could be persuaded that authorized ROEs don't need to rise just because interest rates are rising. Right, right. Okay. So, um, you know, so, so that's, I think that's something that um, is very pervasive and, 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 and takes into account and impacts all of these different issues that are going on in the industry right now. And I think, I think that's probably one of, you know, you know, the most important things for, you know, investors in this industry to keep an eye on. All right. Well, that sounds like a, a great place to, to leave it. And this has been a, a very interesting conversation for, for my end. So, so thank you very much uh, oh. for making time today. Oh, my pleasure. And I think there'll be a lot more for us to, to, to keep the conversation going perhaps in, in future episodes. So, so thanks. Uh, okay. Thanks very much. Sure. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.